Cellular agriculture. When I first heard those words together, I had no idea what they meant. I'm sure that's true for many of you as well. But we have heard of lab-grown meat. You may have heard of the product Heme, which provides plant-based burgers with the juiciness and red color that replicates the beef experience. Technological innovation is driving a revolution in the way we produce a wide range of food products and ingredients. My name is Mike Von Masso, and this is the Food Focus Podcast. My guest today is Lenore Newman, an associate professor at the University of the Fraser Valley and director of the Food and Agriculture Institute at the same university. Lenore studies cellular ag and provides a perspective on the products and possibilities. I wasn't as optimistic as she was on the growth and potential, but she opened my eyes and got me thinking. I expect that will happen for you too. Well, good morning, Lenore, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come chat with me today. Oh, glad to be here. Always uh, always nice to uh, join you. Well, yes, I, Lenore, the, your name uh, was obvious to me because when you and I met, I think our first conversation was about this topic. So let's let's get right to it. We hear terms like lab-grown meat and cellular agriculture and, and fermentation and all sorts of things. Can you give us kind of an overview of what this is? What is cellular agriculture? What is lab-grown meat or, or the many of these terms? Yeah, for sure. We can really describe cellular agriculture as a bit of a catch-all term that has uh, a general meaning of producing animal products without actually um, raising and killing animals. However, under that larger umbrella, there are a set of technologies that are quite distinct, and they fall into two general categories. Uh, number one is the uh, the hamburger in a vat kind of idea, i.e. culturing cells outside of uh, an animal body. And the other one is advanced fermentation techniques to produce proteins using yeast and fungus and bacteria. We also, just to make things even more muddy, we can really look at uh, these technologies as working in concert with uh, plant-based products and often being a mix of the two. So it isn't, it's sometimes framed as quite distinct, but it doesn't need to be. There's a bit of bleed over there. So, so we can, as you said, now grow from base cells. So from animal cells grow, like you said, hamburgers in a vat in Singapore now, chicken fingers in restaurants. So non-muscle cuts, but but grow those cells today. But we can also, and, and, and to give an example on the fermentation side, produce some of these sort of milk proteins without an animal cell, uh, which we which we're using yeast fermentation. So there's all sorts of things that just to illustrate a little bit those examples you gave. Yeah, exactly. And really, these uh, technologies are quite early in development. However, the potential is vast, and I like to say that this is a technological revolution that really rivals the domestication of animals in the first place. 
if we look at these technologies now, they're in a very early stage. What I like to tell people is it's not going to be tomorrow that these products you know, really expand. But I do predict that in 30 years, 40 years, they'll dominate the $2 trillion meat industry, if not replace it completely. Just just because of effectiveness, because of economics, the environmental, the it's just going to be a better option is what you're suggesting. It, exactly. I mean, the big one is environmental. Um, the meat industry is just crushing the planet as it expands. And uh, the real the real problem we're facing is we just can't expand production of conventional meat to meet demand. And we're trying to. And the footprint on the planet is massive. I mean, we know that about 40% of the Earth's land surface is already being used to produce crops and for grazing. But a lot of those crops are then being fed to animals. So definitely, if we look in terms of impact, we know that cows are the largest for the obvious reason. They're the biggest animal. But uh, the entire animal chain has this massive footprint. So the environmental reasons alone are massive. The, uh, the ethical reason, you know, I certainly feel is going to become more and more compelling. Because if you have an option to killing things, we tend to go for the less morally difficult option if technology helps us around problems like that. And so I really think that as that happens, we'll, we'll see that kind of transition we've seen in other things. One of the examples I like to use is even though, you know, I'm a Vancouver, you know, kind of hipster East Van kind of girl, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to jump on my horse later today and ride down to the store to buy some vintage whale oil for my lighting. Those technologies, for what they were used for, are completely, you know, extinct. Whale oil, we like we don't harvest whales almost at all, and everyone is pretty much in agreement with that, you know, with a few exceptions. And horses now are, um, you know, kind of high-end recreational activity, yeah. Yeah. and uh, the horse population is a fraction of what it was in 1900. And I think we'll see similar thing here, and. I like to say, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of an advocate, sure, but mostly I study the arc of history on these mm -hmm. technologies. And anywhere you have a technology competing against something that requires, you know, raising an animal, the technology wins because it gets better every iteration. You know, I tried Impossible Burger 1.0 back in the trial phase. Wasn't so great. Impossible Burger 2.0. A lot better. Impossible Burger 3.0, which is where we are now, I believe. Much less salt, better nutrition, tastes even better. I mean, they literally can upgrade these technologies every every six months. So, so as you say, this technology is really uh, early, and we're starting to see products come to the market. Impossible Burger, Chicken Fingers, you know. We, we have sort of frozen desserts in the U.S. already with yeast-produced dairy proteins in them. What do you think the, the trajectory of products that will come to the market, what will we see on Canadian stores first? 
Yeah, it's a great question because it balances both policy and technology. So from a technological point of view, creating, um, using advanced fermentation by uh, genetically mutating yeast to produce protein is the easiest technology to use. And of course, it is how we make all of our insulin. It is how we make all of our rennet yeah. for cheese or most of it, about 80 to 90 percent. So if you if you want to look at these products as a category, the rennet's already there and has been for you know, 10, 15, 20 years. But if we look at the cell products in a more advanced way where they're replacing a larger portion of the food protein, uh, producing whey protein is easiest. Yeah. And so that's why we have in the States the ice cream perfect days, uh, various subsidiaries doing ice cream are, it's one of the fastest product launches in a long time. We can do other things with whey protein, obviously. So sour cream, cream cheese, there's sort of an array of those products. Those will be first. Then everyone always asks me, what about cheese? Because, hey, cheese is delicious. That's probably next. Casein proteins are harder to, they're not harder to produce, but they're harder to get them to do the thing they need to do. Because casein proteins, to make cheese, they, they form a certain structure that's yeah. a little tricky to get them to do that when you're just producing the protein. But I think we'll break that one next. So you'll then you'll see cheese, and that's massive. But even the whey protein, I like to remind people, that's a massive part of the milk market is yeah. whey pro, pro protein. So with whey protein, we've got the caseins. We already have these plant-based products with a cyst, like the, um, like the Impossible Burger. Mm -hmm. So we'll see more of that. And then we get the cell meats, and it's slower. And people are getting very excited because there's pilot plants being built, etc. But it will take longer. The cost point is still really high. And even the, uh, the chicken being sold in Singapore, it isn't pure. It's on a plant-based lattice. Oh, which, okay. But the real thing is, I actually think that's largely how it's going to be sold for a long time because we only we want a product we don't need it doesn't need to be a solid block of chicken cells it, i mean if if the end result also has a bunch of plant fiber in it that's actually a good thing it's a feature not a bug so i think we'll see that and yeah then really the hardest things so chicken is e is easiest bird cells respond best then uh, then beef fish is there's a lot of people working on fish because of the environmental benefit, but it is quite difficult. It's difficult to make growth serum for seafood. Um, it's also fish cells are notoriously difficult to cultivate. I would say it's last, but then you have the economic push in Asia to do it. So it may actually leapfrog, even though it's harder. Yeah. One of the challenges, and there are lots to unpack in what you just said, but one of the challenges we also have is some of these products that you talked about as early products really make sense because they're also something that we can make relatively close to what we're eating now. And I agree with you on the chicken nuggets or chicken fingers that 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 it's not a bug, but a, but a potential opportunity to, if we can mimic 
the experience, we will likely improve adoption. And I, I'd be interested to hear your perspective on one, one of the, the challenges we hear about quite a bit is, for example, you know, we'll be able to grow a burger in a vat, but will we be able to replicate a steak to, 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 to do that? We, we can maybe get casein to behave in the way we want to and cheese, but can we st- get everything to hang in a, in a blend nicely to make milk so that we get the feel of the fat on the tongue and those sorts of things. So are there, are there attributes of some of these products that will make them easier to, to produce not only just from a technical perspective, but also from a, an experience perspective? Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting because once you start thinking out of the box, it, the sort of vastness of these technologies begins to appear, especially advanced fermentation. It's going to change how we manufacture almost everything. And so when I look at it, first of all, the low hanging fruit is easier. So if we look at 80% of the milk produced in North America going into milk solids, well, we can reproduce that. And there we just cut four fifths of our emissions from the dairy sector. If we look at uh, the U.S., about 60% of beef goes into hamburger. So, wow, that is incredible if we just replace that. But then when we look at some of the, some of the things are complex. So, you know, like I like my Stilton cheese, probably still going to need someone making that the old fashioned way. But things like steak, we may see them just become way less common. And that's sort of happening already. Um, you know, certainly the millennial market and Gen Z don't like the slab of meat as much as previous generations. And that's probably a healthy thing, given what we know about nutrition and, and animal products. But one of the things that boggles my mind, we can actually make better meat. And of course, we don't have to stick with the, the three or four animals that were easy to domesticate. We could literally make meat out of anything. One of the best questions I've had lately is someone asked me, well, could you make could you make meat products out of animals that don't exist? Well, that's a really interesting question I'd never thought of. And, uh, you know, I actually had to phone one of my one of my friends on the science side in this. And the answer is, yeah, if I wanted to create, say, a unicorn steak. I could maybe take a narwhal and mix that DNA with, uh, you know, a cow and yeah. have like a unicorn steak. And, you know, there's no need for the animal to even exist. And, of course, we could use meats that might be healthier for us. I, that, that was my next question, Lenore, is, is then we can sort of customize the health profile of these meats yeah. to, to give us, you know, exactly the attributes we're looking for you know if people want higher iron or or whatever we we can we can sort of select and blend to create not only a flavor experience that that many of us focus on but but a different health experience people who are are eating these products yes and that's a really exciting and potentially massive attribute of this. Uh, So there's a group at Tufts University in Boston that has been uh, uh, culturing beef that wouldn't give you cholesterol. 
And so suddenly that whole, well, you can't eat too much red meat because it's bad for you. We could throw that out the window with these technologies. Where we're at now and where we're at in, say, 10 years, I mean, it's what we can and can't do with this tech, I think is going to be, it's going to be crazy. And I think it's going to move a lot faster than even I thought. I mean, there's just this ramp up. And I mean, it is, it's kind of like 50 years of biology. So you have synthetic biology and genomics and, you know, genetic engineering all coming together to really push what is transformative and what we can do with food. And yeah, we may end up ending, you know, eating things we never thought of. Um, there's also, of course, application in fabrics, in silks, in leathers, leathers we've never been able to use before. Also in medical applications, uh, you know, synthetic, uh, synthetic products we source from animals. I mean, it's just, it's endless. And every day there are more companies, it feels like, exploring this space. It, it, it's probably analogous to sort of us thinking, well, this COVID vaccine came out of nowhere and there's this huge part of the research that's been happening that's sort of more general that's been happening for the last however many years. And wow, this stuff is coming quick and, uh, and, and technology is changing quickly. But there's this huge foundation that was laid beforehand that we weren't paying attention to. Yeah, exactly. And it's a really great example where you have lots of, you know, research uh, into things like HIV and other, you know, other, and SARS, and it set the groundwork for this vaccine. But now suddenly the sky is the limit. And we're talking about vaccines for HIV, for malaria, for, for things that were out of reach before. And in a way, these are similar technologies where we are looking at it and saying, wow, we could make the food system better much more environmentally sustainable. And, you know, if we look at that land impact, if we could cut that land impact by, you know, half, that would go a long way to, towards solving our climate problems mm -hmm. in, you know, just in, in one sector is returning farmland to primary forests could get us a lot of the way there while we made other changes. Just this conversation, Lenore, has made me sort of think, wow, this is this is likely closer than we thought it was. And and that the the technology is both further along and broader than than perhaps I anticipated. What are some of the challenges uh, we face in getting in getting there? The, the largest challenges are still are are technical of a scaling nature. So we've solved most of the, uh, the sort of keystone problems where you literally have to sit in a room and think, how do I do this thing? But where we're at now is we have a lot of these companies looking at how do we scale? How do we, uh, how do we take these companies from bench science to in the supermarket? And that actually comes down to sort of more of a marketing and you know business side of things in that what we're seeing is we're seeing some of the ceos swapping out for more seasoned ceos who aren't bench scientists we're seeing you know companies recruiting you know the marketing teams they would need and looking at policy 
because the policy piece is important and we do want to make sure these products are safe and roll out in a safe way. Um, but one of the things we're running into is policy is based on on thousands of years of using one type of product. Yeah. And so you run into this odd problem that how do you do this? How do you make these, how do you fit these products into a system that isn't really built for it? And that's sort of what we're seeing now is, uh, you know, con countries like Singapore are, you know, looking at their policy landscape and working to actually encourage these technologies. Here in Canada, we're starting to have those conversations as well as in the U.S., so, so there's that, that's an, that is, um, you know, it would be naive. I mean, the meat industry is a $2 trillion industry. It's, it's either going to pivot or push back and we're going to see both. One of the things I think is really interesting is seeing these large meat companies, these giant meat companies moving into the cell space because they're choosing pivot rather than push that is going to move this faster than anything else. Right, because because that they are the scale. They understand those customers, they understand those those distribution systems and and it it almost becomes like the pharma business where you have these small startups doing the discovery who then get bought up by the large companies who who bring products to market. Uh, yes, and I mean you know, given there is kind of a maker culture, I could even see like a cooperative model emerging, like a dairy cooperative or a, you know, a brand like Ocean Spray, where the farmers are all, you know, putting their product into the same pipeline for branding and marketing and processing. I think we're going to see that. We're going to see you know, we're going to see some big players emerge, but we're also going to see small players banding together to do the parts they're not good at. Because the people who are driving this are bench scientists, they're good at that, and they're learning on the fly how to run companies. But like you say, the food chain is a massive beast. And what's really going to drive this is when we start to see, yes, existing Distrib you know, distribution channels opening up. Some of those existing meat companies bringing out lines by, yes, collaborating or buying up these smaller companies and things will move quickly. Yeah, and we saw that in the plant-based space as well, right? And, 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 exactly. And, and as you say, these aren't necessarily distinct. There, there is overlap in the plant-based and cellular. And, and, and in fact, we're seeing overlap in the plant-based and traditional meat industry as well, where we're seeing blends and, and other things in products that are being brought to the market. The regulatory question remains a, a, a really interesting one. Do you think governments are ready or, or have they thought about these things or... Have, have we got the foundation of frameworks within which we can bring these products to market? Um, in Canada, no. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, governments are by nature reactive often. So other governments are a little further ahead. I think what's interesting is my experience in Canada, because I do work with government at multiple levels, is two years ago, when I brought this to government, to bureaucrats, to MLAs, no one had heard of these technologies. 
now they have now they are thinking about it now they are moving to see how would this fit in the food system but i think what we will see is because the technology is moving so fast government is going to be playing catch up uh, you know so are academics in a way the companies are moving way faster than the rest of us uh, can kind of deal with and you know in the us we are seeing the system kind of adapt in that uh, you know the the usda and fda cover off different food systems so for example the fda is looking at fish because fish falls under the fda USDA is looking at um, the animal products, and uh, there's a lot going on actually in the U.S. around looking at what do we call these, how do we name them, which I always feel is a bit of a red herring. Yeah, it I agree. Yeah, it doesn't really matter what you call them. It and I think reactive meat industry people trying to push back by protecting like names, they're they're wasting their money ultimately. I, I agree. I've written about that. I'm I'm not sure that that's uh, I'm not sure I'm not sure that that's the priority. In fact, that that's not making a difference with consumer perceptions. Yeah, and you know, I mean, my I'm sometimes asked, well, what should you do if you're in the meat industry? Well, aside from maybe start thinking about a long-term exit plan, but it's not going to be fast. I mean, really, where to pivot there is quality. Quality and environmental branding is going to have a place for a very long time uh, because these products are going to come up and displace, rightfully so, the parts of the animal industry that have the worst labor practices, the worst environmental practices, the worst animal ethics. To be honest, I'm not going to protect those those parts of the industry. They they should reform or go away. But meanwhile, you know, that high end, that like that Stilton cheese, which is the example I always use, yeah. you know, they have they have a niche that is is protected and they also have a bit more of a moral high ground on animal ethics, labor ethics, and environment. Probably not the best time to like you know, open a dairy with a hundred thousand cows all crammed in, like some some that have happened globally. Yeah, it's interesting because as I've been talking to industry, I've been I've been saying differentiation, even in the absence of the discussion of cellular agriculture. I've been saying, you know, you you need to think about how you're different, why you're different, get away from that commodity mindset, and the disruption's going to happen most quickly at that at that commodity market and the differentiated product on environment, on taste, on, on welfare and others uh, will, will stick around much, much longer and may in fact have a long-term niche as a special, uh, as a special treat. Oh yeah. And when I look at it, I think the weird thing is for the cell ag industry, the real competition isn't the animal industry. It's the plant-based and I think the final outcome might actually be kind of a merging of the two in that the winning products might be both plant-based with a cell assist that gets them to that quality of mouthfeel, of taste, of uh, cooking. It's, it's like, you know, I, I use oat milk. I mean, I'm a bit lactose intolerant, so, you know, I like milk alternatives anyway. But to me, oat milk does everything I need it to, I don't really need it to be much better. 
Yeah. So, you know, I go and crack open the Oatly. I don't need someone to give me like genetically identical milk for my day-to-day cereal use. So I think it is kind of interesting. And the plant-based sector is still totally on fire. I mean, it's just crazy how much it's grown. The one thing I would say is I do think Canada is poised to be a cellular ag superpower because we grow the precursors. And really, I could see us making these products and sending them to the entire world because we grow the grains, the pulses, the pea protein. We have we grow the sugar beets in Alberta that no one can figure out what to do with. And it's been this industry we think should be great. But hey, we have a use now. We could be turning it into cellular cheese, sending the cellular cheese everywhere. I think Cellular agriculture is win-win-win for Canada. Mm-hmm. Cool. That, so that's that. So that's interesting. And and I, I was intrigued by the point you made. Uh, we, we perhaps need to stop thinking in silos of products and and uh, of production products and think more in terms of what are we offering consumers and we can give them combinations of products that meets their needs and keeps them happy. And and whether that's a combination of plant-based and cell or a combination of traditional meat protein or, or dairy protein or whatever and plant and or sell, really, we need to think more broadly about where do we want to end up rather than where we're starting. Exactly. And we really, I think it should be seen as this great opportunity. I think there is, the one other thing that would be interesting is I do see in this Perhaps the final end of that very North American and Western conceit of quote unquote natural in that there's definitely one of the things I hear from people is, oh, I wouldn't eat that. It's not natural. And I always roll my eyes at that because I'm like, okay, what's natural about a cow? There is no such thing as a cow in the wild. They were bred out of the auroch. The auroch is now extinct and we have this animal that we invented through very slow genetic engineering. Same with the modern chicken. The modern chicken is five times bigger than chickens were in 1950. And that's really wrong. I mean, they, you know, they can, if they grow to adulthood, they don't thrive. They only live for like eight weeks or so. You know, to me, it's funny. We Really what natural means is kind of like natural is sort of what I think my grandmother might have made. And there's sort of this image in North America of the, I like to say it is the 1930s farm. The 1930s farm with the, you know, the heterosexual couple growing a mixed variety of crops. And if you look at uh, the media and children's books and that's the farm we show. That's the farm we think. We don't think of 100,000 chickens in a room when yeah. we think of a farm. And I think this might finally break down that. We might finally start thinking of food production as something urban, not rural. So I do think it's going to be interesting how that plays out. It's, it's interesting that, that, that you say all of that. And, and how these products are brought to market, I think, will be, it will be important to think about how we communicate that will affect the rate of adoption of, of these products. I, I, th- I think you're right that, that there's some inevitability around bringing these products to the market. And, and, and we've got a little bit of sort of food privilege, if you will, 
because we spend such a small proportion of our income on 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 food, we we have the ability to sort of be a little bit more picky and choosy. Uh, but but this will bring down costs, provide a provide a in your view a sustainable platform for the future, uh, and uh, it, it will be interesting to see whether demand keeps up with technological improvement. And I think a big part of that is how we communicate. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's about speed. I do feel it's inevitable. And that's because one of my rules of studying, you know, the adoption of technology is technology always wins. There is no case of a major technology that we looked at and said, no, we don't want that one. Don't like that one. Going to stick with the old silly way of doing it for the next thousand years. No, that doesn't happen. So if we call it inevitable, then yes, it's about speed of adoption and who adopts it. And I do feel this will, these technologies will move faster in parts of the world without, I'll call it the romanticism around food that uh, some portions of our population have. But I think even here, I mean, Really, most people, cost is important. And that's, you know, of course it is. We're all very worried about the cost of housing, the cost of gas. It's very expensive to live here. And yeah, so if suddenly there's an option that's massively cheaper and it looks healthier and better for the environment and the ethics are better, well, we're probably going to go with that one. But I agree, it is, there will be this bit of stickiness um, as people adopt and we see that and there's a lot of interesting studies showing adoption in food and farming is slower than in other areas and and that makes sense i mean we're eating it it's intimate we you know it's of course it is and so i think you know there will be a bit of that but i mean given the technology itself isn't quite there yet i think in a way, it's interesting that it's getting so much media. It's almost like we're getting ready for it, like we're getting it through our head that this exists and thinking, yeah, maybe I would do that. And then, you know, that could be OK. And I had one of these impossible burgers. It was good. And, yeah. you know, you can see people kind of shifting And our in our group. We have done uh, surveys and what we find is older people are much less likely to adopt this technology. Young people, they're fine. You know, the millennials, Gen Z, they see it as technology and they like technology. And so I think we will see a sharp age delimitation. Yeah, I think and and, uh, I I think there's also a a real group of consumers who are looking for more choice, who are looking, you know, I, I think about my 26 year old son. Uh, who who just who just likes to have more different options? Who likes more variety? And and that consumer is wide open to to these sorts of products that they can say, I'm going to try them even before I'm ready to let go of my of burger or my steak or whatever, just to 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 provide some increasing diversity in my diet. Like I mean, I think it goes back a little bit to what you said. You know, I'll, I'll still want my Stilton, but. But other things I will get from other sources, and 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 that openness I think we've seen to 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 greater diversity of food sources lays lays a a foundation for demand for these products. Oh, it's true, and I also think we will see 
more readily replacing products that are more morally questionable or environmentally questionable. A lot of people I know, and I myself don't eat meat anymore uh, because of some of these issues, which, you know, coming from a commercial fishing family is, uh, you know, was a shift for me. But even before I I cut meat out, um, I wouldn't eat a bluefin, even though it's one of my favorite things on earth, because it just feels massively wrong because they're so endangered. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are shifting that way. And I know here in BC, everyone loves salmon, but a lot of people are looking at it and thinking, oh, the salmon are in so much trouble. Is it even right for me to eat one anymore? And so there's a bit of an extra moral kick. I think we'll see that a bit with beef as well, because as the largest land animal, they have the biggest footprint and people are finding out about that. And we can see that shift. People are shifting to chicken and fish, hoping it has a better footprint. And so if you give them another option that's even better, they'll shift there. Mm -hmm. And it'll accelerate It'll accelerate quicker if we can give them a good experience. It doesn't have to be identical experience, but if they can enjoy the food. It's, exactly. It's, it's sort exactly. of part of the, the, the food privilege we have in North America is we, need to, we, we want to be able to enjoy it as well as feel good about it. It's true. And if we look to um, you know, Asia, for example, where the desire for meat is rising really quickly, and there is no way to meet that desire using conventional egg. We would destroy the planet trying. But there's the desire. So if uh, in those markets, if suddenly there's pork available at a lower price and people are like, wow, I've been wanting to eat more pork. Mm-hmm. And suddenly there it is in the, in the market, uh, fresh from uh, you know, a vat in this case instead of a pig. Um, we're going to see a lot of growth there. So it's 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 fascinating. I'm sure we could talk all day, and I, I promised I wouldn't keep you too long. I just I, I I'm looking forward to seeing how this goes. I'm I'm really intrigued. Uh, I actually learned some things today, Lenore. So I appreciate it. Is there a final point you would make that that I should have asked you but I didn't? Um, I think my final point is when I look at these technologies, I think we have to start to understand how transformational they're going to be. And in just every aspect of our lives, especially the advanced fermentation, and it won't happen tomorrow, but it's inevitable it will happen and will be happening in a much more profound way. And one of the, the only other thing I would add is governments have to start thinking about what are the knock-on effects? What do they need to do? to get ready for this future. And when I look at um, Uber disrupting the taxi industry, that was handled very poorly and people lost their livelihoods. They lost their savings because the disruption was so abrupt. We should be asking ourselves, what does rural Canada look like with these new technologies? What do quota holders look like? What uh, what to conventional farmers? What do we need to do for them? Because when the disruption comes, it's likely the companies will be the same, yeah. but it's highly unlikely the farmers producing conventional 
will be pivoting for the most part into sell. Now there are a few. I've, I know a few who are doing that pivot, but they're the minority. And so government's job in this case, in my opinion, is to roll out policy, but is also to support the transition in a fair and equitable way. And you know, this idea of just transition is gaining steam. And I really think this is a case where that's going to be needed um, if we're to, you know, really make sure people benefit from these tech. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I, I think there's not only the regulatory approval process, but it is, it, 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 it's a great point thinking about that transition. So thank you very much, Lenore. I've, I've enjoyed the conversation. I've learned something and I look forward to chatting again. Oh, you're very welcome. Lovely to spend some time with you. That wraps up another episode of the Food Focus podcast. We very much appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you just discovered Food Focus, you can subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review. It helps others find us. Before we go, I want to thank my producer, Zach, for his hard work in making each episode sound good and for his original music that helps us transition. He does the hard work and we get to have all of the fun. Thanks. Have a great day.